13. Take a little break from our series Philippians after Advent. Last week, Jeff preached on the triune God. This week, we're going to hear about praising the Lord and why it is a worthy task. I owe a great debt for my understanding of this passage and the application thereof to Charles Spurgeon and Paul Tripp. So if you like anything about it, you can, you can blame them. This is Psalm 113. We'll be reading the whole psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high and live, is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, you are high above all nations. Your glory is above the heavens. We cannot begin to fully understand who you are, what you do. But Father, grant us that we would glimpse a small portion of it this morning. We believe in your Holy Spirit and we pray that he would be at work. I am not equal to the task at hand, but you can give us a picture of your greatness and help us to respond in praise. Do what we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was making teacher gifts for my children's teachers this Christmas. Teachers are worth it. I'm not, not um, dissing teacher gifts at all, but uh, we're trying to make it a little bit simpler. And so uh, there's a place I've been going to that has a laser engraver. And so I designed this thing and, I, and I, I set it up so that it would just do all the ornaments at once. I didn't have to go and, and make it. We made these ornaments that had the teacher's name. It was personalized. The kids painted it. It was great. But as I was telling Ransom what we were going to do, I was like, yeah, I'm going to go use the, the laser engraver to make the teacher gifts. And he's like, the what? I said, the laser engraver. He's like, you're going to use a laser to make something? I was like, yeah, this is a laser engraver. He cuts it out, and I showed him a, a video of it. His mind was completely blown that there was such a thing as a laser that you could use to make things. His mind was just overwhelmed by the possibilities. And we see a similar thing happening here in this passage the psalmist is reflecting on the greatness of God, and his, he's just overwhelmed. He's like just overflowing with praise for God, this childlike wonder at who God is and what he does. Now, this psalm and the, and the six that follow it would often be sung at Passover. These psalms particularly cry out the praise for God and who he is and what he does. And even here in 113, we see the word praise repeated three times in the first verse alone. 
The psalmist is in a sense crying out, trying to wake us up. Praise the Lord. Praise his name. Blessed be his name. And we see here in this passage that the greatness of the Lord calls out for all praise. That the greatness of who God is and the way that he deals with his creation and mercy calls out for all praise. And so we're going to look at a couple things this morning. We're going to see that he deserves praise for his excellency, for who he is. We're going to see that he deserves praise for his mercy and the way that he treats his people. And then we're going to look at what praise looks like practically. Praise for his excellency, praise for his mercy, and praise practically. But first, what does it mean that he deserves praise for his excellency, for who he is? You see in these first few verses this repetition of the phrase, the name of the Lord, over and over again. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is to be praised. This is highlighting the importance of of praising God, not, not for who we think He is, not for who we want him to be or what, what we think he's like, but for who he actually is, for the way that he has revealed himself. The name is a very important thing. It demonstrates some authority and power. I get to name my children, and that demonstrates that I am over them in one sense. God is the only one who gets to name himself. And he has done so in his word. He has revealed who he is. And and this passage is saying, that is the Lord that we are to praise. This one, who he is, the way he has revealed himself. And so it calls out, says, praise, O servants of the Lord. This is a special invitation. If you follow the Lord, if you know who he is, if you believe and trust on him, this, this psalm is calling you out to praise him. It is inviting you into this wonderful task to give praise and worship to the Lord, our God. It also kind of recognizes that there are those who don't want to, who aren't willing to praise the Lord. But it specially says, if you are a servant of the Lord, come and praise Him. And to do so from this time forth. It doesn't mean we we didn't do it before, but it's saying, what are you waiting for? Start right now. From this time forth, forevermore, praise the Lord. There's no better time to start now. Maybe you have a New Year's resolution. Maybe you don't believe it at all. But but, but here's a new opportunity in a new year. As Christians, every Sunday, every week, we have a new opportunity, a new invitation, a new call to come and praise the Lord. That's what it's saying. From this time forth and forevermore, start praising Him now and don't stop. And do so from the rising of the sun to its setting. The Hebrew often does this where it uses two extremes, but it means everything when it says the two extremes. From the rising of the sun to its setting, all day long, as long as it is today, praise the Lord. It also recognizes that God is in control of all those things. He makes the sun rise and the sun set. Whether you're good or bad, whether you oppose him or you follow him, he raises the sun on you and makes it set at night. And so these first few verses are calling us out that in all places and at all times, without exception, 
We should be roused from our indifference to who God is, our apathy towards, towards his being and what he does, and our negligence towards praising him and turn and praise the Lord. Well, the psalmist gives us reasons. He says, the Lord is high above all nations. He's high above all nations. He rules over all, whether or not you recognize it, whether or not the nations acknowledge it or not, he rules over all. You can say, I don't believe in gravity and jump off of something. It doesn't matter. Gravity is going to take control. The Lord rules over all nations, regardless of their willingness to acknowledge it. All the things that we think of as powerful, right? These image of nations as these mighty forces with armies that rule over empires, all of those things are ruled over by the Lord. He is high above them, not just barely edging them out. He is far and high above all nations. They're nothing in comparison to Him. It says His glory is above the heavens. The highest thing that we can think of in creation, the heavens, His glory is above that. The aura of who He is, the, the, the projection of His holiness and His power and His might and His rule is above the highest thing that we can conceive of in creation. This is part of the problem with some of the more popular critiques of Christianity or belief in God, is that the God that is being critiqued is often wildly different from the God who is. It's often a far cry short of the way that, that the Lord has revealed himself in Scripture. And so you read these critiques or you hear someone say, like, that doesn't sound anything like God. He is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. And so the psalmist just comes to the point where he says, who is like the Lord our God? Who is like him? Who is like this God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? There is no good answer to this question, by the way. Who is like the Lord our God? Spurgeon said, the challenge will never be answered. <laughs> any, any attempt to answer this question misunderstands either who God is or the thing that you think is like him. <laughs> The closest answer we could come up with is Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. But that's a little bit like saying, hey, that Pastor TJ kind of looks like that guy that Elizabeth is married to. But even that doesn't get to the point. That's modalism, which is a heresy. It doesn't, we cannot begin to compare God to anyone. God is God. Three persons, the same essence, united in power and glory, eternity. And so this is a question like a spouse saying, like, who is like the one that I love? It's a rhetorical question. Aren't, aren't they amazing? Isn't it astonishing, this person that I adore, that I get to be around all the time? That's the kind of question being asked here. Who is like the Lord our God? He is utterly unlike, utterly beyond anyone or anything we could conceive of. He does not need us. He does not need his creation. He does not need anyone 
powerful or weak. He does not need anything to support him or aid him. He's outside of time. Not above time, beyond time, outside of time. We cannot even understand what that looks like. He does not change. In fact, he's unchanging in in all that he is and in the way that he acts and treats his people. He doesn't change. Our world changes. We felt that. Our culture changes. Our nation changes. The communities that we live in change. If you're a student, school is changing week to week. Your whole world is changing. Your families change. Friends change. You change. Your own body, your mind, your feelings change constantly, forever. But not God. God is unchanging. He is beyond anything we can conceive of. Who is like the Lord our God? The Apostle Paul in Romans sums it up this way as he's just bubbling over with praise. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God does not need us. For his glory. But in his compassion, he reveals his glory in us, to us, by us, on us, whenever he pleases. And he calls for his praise. For he is the one who looks far down. Another translation could be he humbles himself to look down. Even on the heavens, Even to look down on the heavens, he has to condescend. He has to, in a figurative sense, stoop down just to see the heavens. NASA just launched this space telescope last week, this multi-billion dollar endeavor that they're kind of hoping it makes it out there, and then they're setting it up right now. And this is just so that we can hope to see things far away, light years away that we will never in our lifetimes ever have a chance to visit. The Lord has to stoop down in order to see those things. He is so far above and beyond. But that highlights another reason for his praise in that he agrees to do so. That, that though he is beyond all of creation, that though he is beyond in majesty and glory and power, he shows mercy in his coming down to interact with his creation. This verse 6 is kind of like a bridge where it talks about who God is, but it highlights what he's doing as well. This is a further reflection of, of the confession or the assurance of pardon, sorry, the confession of sin that we heard earlier, that the, the one who inhabits eternity also dwells with him of a contrite and humble spirit. The one who who dwells and inhabits eternity also dwells and inhabits him of a contrite and lowly spirit. 
That is, that is astonishing. God regularly defies our expectations by not only condescending to creation, but also condescending and coming to and, and dwelling with and inhabiting and, and working with and, and, and enjoying the, the weakest and frailest and least parts of it. And we see this throughout Scripture. As he took Abraham, plucked him from obscurity, and Sarah, who, who could not have children, and he made them parents of a great nation. As he took Moses, this guy who's like, I can't speak in public, and said, you are going to go to Pharaoh and declare that my people are to be freed. As he took Gideon, who had to be convinced multiple times that, the God, that God was going to use him, and he saved Israel. And he took Esther, and he protected his people. And he took David, this, this littlest brother, whose dad didn't even think to consider him as a possibility to one day be king of Israel because he was out in the fields doing work. He's like, oh, you want that guy? Well, I guess we'll bring him in. He took David and made him the, arguably the greatest king of Israel. And he took Paul, the one who was openly defying him, the one who regularly talks about this thorn in the flesh, who, who diminishes his ability to speak out the glories of God. He took him and he used him to spread his word throughout the known world. We see again and again how he comes to widows. He comes to orphans. How the people, as, as his word spreads, we see in Acts and throughout the New Testament, as his word spreads, the people that he goes to are not the most powerful more often than not, he goes to them and he raises them into his presence and his family. And we see this most notably in Jesus, who was born as a baby. He didn't come to earth as a reigning king, though he was. He came to earth as a baby in Bethlehem, this little town. Not Jerusalem, Bethlehem. It's like the suburb. He came to a poor family. Wasn't born into the king's family. And we see Jesus over and over again throughout his ministry, not, not going to the rulers and, and, and evangelizing them with his gospel, but he goes to the sinners, and he goes to the sick, and he heals their wounds, spiritual and physical. We see him again and again say, let the little children come to me. Inviting them into his presence. We see him go to the cross and die a criminal's death. Brutally. For his people. And sometimes we can hear this and our reaction is sort of like, cool. And we just completely miss the majesty of what is happening. To truly understand this is to, is to react like Isaiah did when he found himself in the throne room of God and says, oh no, I am a sinner. I am poor and needy beyond anything. I live among a people that are unclean and poor and needy. And he reacts in fear, but he too is comforted with the redemption of God. And so we see that, that, that God deserves praise for His mercy, that He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. This word ash heap can also be translated dung heap, trash pile. 
where the poor and the needy are just cast out, destitute, despised, forsaken. He goes there and he raises them up from that place. Jesus has been there himself. And so he goes and he pulls them up. No work is beneath him. No person is too little to deal with. My father-in-law has owned several businesses over his lifetime, but it's been cool to hear stories about how when he owned several restaurants and someone needed to, to fix the toilet, he's in there doing it himself, right? No work is beneath him. If it needs to be done, it's going to be done. God sees the work that needs to be done. And out of the goodness and the love and the compassion of his heart, he goes to those places and he lifts the poor out and he lifts the needy from the dust and from the trash where they have been cast, where they have been abused, where they have been tossed, when they have been forgotten. And he pulls them up to sit with princes. Spurgeon says, the Lord does nothing by halves. He doesn't just pull you out of the trash and be like, all right, have a good time, takes you and he sits you with princes. And not just with princes, but with the princes of his people. The all of God's people are princes by virtue of their adoption by the king of creation. But here there's a special elevation of the neediest and the weakest and the least to the highest place among his people with the princes. And so if the first half of this psalm encourages us to be humble, to be humbled before God, to be aware of how we actually are before Him. These verses comfort us and encourage us that we will be lifted up, for we are needy and poor, and He takes those kinds of people and lifts them to sit with princes, the princes of His people. And also, He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. In the ancient Near East, the context was that, that, that having children is, is the highest good, not just for women. Abraham is, is, is just mournful that he's not having a child. For men and women to have a child, to carry on your legacy, to, to carry on your tradition, to carry on your praise of the Lord was a beautiful, magnificent, highest good. And so to be barren was to be destitute in one sense. And it says that the Lord takes the barren woman and gives her a home, making her the joyous mother of children. And so he takes those who have not and blesses them beyond they could, what they could hope and see. We see this in Sarah. We see this in Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth as God not only gives them children, but does mighty things with their children and makes them joyous mothers. In fact, verses 7 and 8 here of this psalm are, are almost a verbatim quote of Hannah's prayer from 1 Samuel 2, where she says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. This doesn't mean that Motherhood is the only way that God can bless women. This also doesn't mean that there's a promise of motherhood for all women. But what it does mean is that God will comfort and fulfill and bless in a better way than you or I could hope or understand. 
And I don't know what pain you have. Some of you I do. Some of you I don't. I don't know all the needs sitting here in this room. I don't know what places where you feel cast off. But I do know, and I have seen, that God can and will bless the poor and the needy and the barren, making them joyous and sitting them with princes. He can. God's excellency is sufficient to deserve praise on His own. But it's, <clears throat> it's intensified by the mercy that He shows to His people. But what does that look like in practice? The psalm ends there in verse 9. Praise the Lord, kind of circling back to what He came before. He said, you should do this. Here's some reasons why. But I just want to remind you, praise the Lord. And humans, we can be really bad at this. There's a reason people joke about New Year's resolutions dropping off about January 9th. It's not about knowing what we need to do. How many times in the last week have you said, I shouldn't have done that. I knew better than that. It's easier to kind of uh, to, to orient ourselves, to pursue a, a theme, a direction. We're all glory-seeking creatures. Right? God has put eternity in man's heart, as he says in Ecclesiastes. And so we desire glory, and, and we, we look for it in all kinds of places. And we give praise, in a sense, to all kinds of things. So what glory has captured your heart? What glory has captured your attention? What, what thing are you longing for as that is worth it? That is it. That will satisfy. What glory are you oriented towards? Some of us can sit here week to week and have a practical atheism. I, I believe in God, but I'm not really going to listen to what he says to do over there in that passage. And, and I really feel like I need to do this other thing instead of what he's called me to. Or I don't really need him at all. I mean, I'll go to church because that's good, but I, I don't need him in any way. But I, I, I don't want to sit here and, and shame you that you're just not appreciating God enough. Maybe you aren't but that's between you and the Holy Spirit. What I do want to do is to invite you to behold this God, to, to see who He is, to, to, to hear what He has done and what He is doing, and to, to orient yourself and to turn yourself towards this magnificent vision of, of God that evokes praise. And the thing about orienting ourselves is it's a constant, slow, deliberate process to consider God and to pursue praise of Him. It's the accumulation of, of millions of choices. It's, it's a habit. When we've visited my in-laws and gone out on the boat in Florida, occasionally my father-in-law will let Ransom steer, which is a little terrifying. But, I mean, it's a boat, so like you can jerk the wheel to the left and it's going to take three minutes to make that turn, right? That's 
That's the way humans are. We like to think we're like a jet ski. We can just like change all over the place. And sometimes we make little choices. But generally, we are very slow, deliberate, turning towards something else. Often happens without us even recognizing it. And so praise of the Lord and a habit of praise for the Lord flows not just from an intellectual affirmation of who He is and the truth that He has revealed. It doesn't flow just from an emotional experience in worship or in your life where He has, has done great work. It's all that, but it's, it's so much more. It's a, it's a moment by moment acknowledging, reflecting, considering, admiring, appreciating, applying who He is. The one who is high above the heavens, whose glory is above the heavens. And what he does, the one who raises the poor from the dust, who gives barren women a home. It requires meditation. It requires looking at, what am, what am I doing? You have habits whether you realize it or not. What do you do in the morning when you get up? What do you do at meals? What do you do in the restroom? What do you do at dinner? What do you do as you go to bed? What do you do at work? What do you do in your free time? It requires us to, to gaze at who God is and to search out what it means for us to, to, to worship Him in response, to surrender with the places where we want to take His place, where we think we don't need Him, to give it over to Him, to examine ourselves and confess, to cry out for help, and to do that over and over and over and over and over and over again. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And so seeing and experiencing and studying creation can, can deepen our understanding of the Creator and can help us to value Him more and to praise Him and worship Him greater. I remember when Elizabeth and I were dating and I'd go visit her in D.C. and we'd go to these galleries for free and see these magnificent paintings that I had just studied in art history class. And I was just blown away at the access that I got to see and experience this thing that I had learned so much about. And I could have gone and done that without doing all the study, but my appreciation of it was deepened by having done the work and seen what went into this painting or what went into this, this carving or this piece of art. It didn't change the art, but it changed the way I appreciated it. And so we can look at creation, and we can understand the way the world works, and it can deepen our appreciation of God. It doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change His work, but it can help us to understand just how great it is that He created the world the way He did. And the same goes for those who are made in God's image and all the good that they do. And, and those who are being remade in Christ's image and all the good that they do. And we know and we experience the lives of others. It can help us to worship God. Just this year, I've gotten to hear stories of someone who loved his adopted daughter so well that she confessed, I know God loves me because my adopted father loved me. Or I get to hear of someone who, on his deathbed, was so faithful a witness that his hospice nurse came to faith. 
I get to hear those stories, not because people just send them my, my way, but because I go and I talk and I, I live next to other Christians in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of death. But I hear how God has worked mightily in their lives. And so we as worshipers help others to see the glory of God. We, through conversation, through reflecting who He is, through considering all that He's done in our lives and expressing that to others, we can point them to Him. We can help others see something that we have first seen ourselves. Paul Tripp, in one of his books, talks about how his brother came to an understanding of the sovereignty of God, and this just rubbed him the wrong way. They got into an argument so heated that he took off his shoe and threw it at his brother. And afterwards, his brother brought him a, a, a paperback Bible and a highlighter and said, just read this. Go through and highlight anywhere it talks about God's sovereign rule. And, and Paul Tripp says he, he did it. He did it out of spite almost. Like, yeah, I'm going to go through and do this. And his life was changed as a result. What would it look like for us to do something similar? To go through Scripture and, and, and I'm sure you have an extra copy of the Bible somewhere. If not, talk to me and I'll get you one. And just highlight how good God is. What is the good thing that He has done throughout Scripture? Maybe just start with the Psalms or Isaiah or a Gospel and just Walk through and see how good God is, how worthy of praise. Maybe you're here and you don't believe any of this. You don't trust God. I don't think he's great. I don't think he's good. I haven't seen him do any good work in my life. What would it look like for you to to really seriously consider that? To really seriously try and figure that out. To study what he has said in his word. To listen to those who have seen his greatness. Who do know him and love him. And to consider, maybe he is all that he is described as. This is going to require diligence to praise God in this way. It's persistence. Without control over how fast we change without control over the outcome, but to slowly and surely and deliberately grow in our understanding of who God is and what He has done for His people. There's this poem by the English poet John Donne that I absolutely love, where he uses this extended metaphor of a tinkerer working on fixing a piece of, of metal, um, metalwork as a, as a metaphor for what God is doing in his heart. And he ends it with this line, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. Saying, I will not be free. I will not be free from the weight of sin, of slavery to my own desires, except you enthrall me. I become so consumed with who you are and what you have done and are doing in my life. That is where my freedom will be. And that is my invitation to you to be so enthralled with the Lord our God that we can be free in our worship of Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so good. Even just saying so good doesn't 
dip a toe in the vastness of the ocean of your goodness. You are so high above. You are so powerful and majestic. You are so just and yet merciful, compassionate, and yet holy. Father, we can't begin to understand all of this. And even further, when we consider all that you are and how you have interacted with your people and shown mercy to them, we are overwhelmed. Grant us to understand what little we can in our human frailty and to respond with praise, that we would praise your name. Do what we ask for, we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.